I've been told a few times that this is effectively the first part of a three-part finale, and I, I could kind of see that. They actually broke this episode at the same time as What You Left Behind, and this is, as I mentioned last week, the setup to the payoff. So they put final few pieces on the board and make sure everything's in the right position. Doesn't mean it's without flaws. So the Sao Paulo comes up. Uh, okay, so it, I, I already complained about the destruction of the Defiant and how I thought it was stupid and unnecessary and didn't work. And then we get the Defiant back. We get another Defiant class, and they get special dispensation to rename it the Defiant, which, actually, if you're thinking about it, shouldn't that be the Defiant B? Kind of like, you know, Enterprise B, Enterprise C, and D, and E, and F, and J. But anyways, point being, <clears throat> shouldn't this be the Defiant B? But it just, it completely invalidates that. In fact, the only description I heard, and this is actually a quote the Deep Space Nine companion, so I don't know who actually said this, but, I mean, you can't have a finale without the Defiant, then why did you blow it up? <laughs> Whatever. I've complained about that. There's a bit of a C plot. Yeah, we'll go with C plot in this episode. About will they, won't they when it comes to Ezri and uh, Bashir. And apparently they decided to save that until the second to last episode of the series. Because they're still will they, won't they ying. Several times. Now, there's this actually kind of decent scene where the two of them agree... Well, I shouldn't say decent, but it's it's a decently done scene where the two say that they don't want to you know, jeopardize their friendship. That even though they are both romantically attracted... sexually attracted to each other, possibly romantically attracted to each other, but definitely sexually attracted to each other, that they don't want to jeopardize their friendship. I've actually been there myself. This is a long time ago, obviously. It's just, I mean, come on, look at me. But uh, I have actually been there before. And it's interesting to think about, because it takes more than you'd think to resist that attraction in the favor of friendship. I'm actually still friends with her to this very day, if you believe it. So, apparently that was the right call in that case. I don't know, I'll never know. But it's interesting they decide to go that, and then immediately... Well, <clears throat> so then they get in the, the elevator thing. Oh, God, I can't think what the name of it is all of a sudden. And they're just making out, and everyone's just kind of watching, and Worf's like... Bzzzt. Back down. <laughs> I'll, I'll admit that got a chuckle out of me. But that's the really weird thing about this episode. It is literally half comedic, half serious. I'm not sure what I think of that combo. Every scene to do with the resistance cells is very serious, very dark, and very down to earth. It is exactly as brutal and um, unflinching as it needs to be. It's even inspiring. Every other scene, and I do mean 100% of them, are jokes. And I don't just mean like they're telling jokes. I mean, it has that comedic tone. You know, they, they, the, the music is different, the lighting is different, the camera angles are different, the tone of the characters is different. Everything is different. And trying to present it like it's a comedy episode. Obviously this was done on purpose, but it makes this episode really weird to go through. <clears throat> Let's talk about the comedy stuff first. Actually, before we go into that. Odo is all pissy because they don't want to give the cure to the founders. Why? I'm sorry for being that guy, but as I pointed out many times, uh, the founders are th are the problem here. And um, they need to be dealt with, and curing the founders would 
basically be, I mean, you might as well just shoot yourself if you're going to do that, honestly. Yes, we, we'll, we'll go ahead and cure your people, Odo. And then we'll uh, do, do us a favor, shoot us in the head so we don't feel anything when your people decide to come around with a much larger fleet in the future. What? And he acts all uppity and high and mighty about it, which irritates me the most. But as I've already said, Odo's thing with his people has never made sense to me. I don't want to advocate casual genocide, but there's nothing casual about this. This is a very well-reasoned, very carefully crafted, very specific and extreme scenario, which it is mandatory for survival. At least as the circumstances are now. We'll see going in the future. Anyways, so, um, Legate Broca shows up, and he is the problem with evil dictatorships. There's always someone willing to sell everyone else out, willing to just smile and nod and do whatever in exchange for, you know, scraps of power. There's always someone. That's how those things uh, tend to propagate in real life, too. Which is funny because uh, I wrote his name, Gol Ravek, who I don't think has even shown on camera. No, he, that's not true. He's shown once. He's another example of that, oh, I told you I could totally show them where they were. I wonder what he got for that. What pat on the back did he get for that? So Legate Broca, <laughs> uh, the female changeling says we're going to pull back and redefend, and we're going to sit behind this much more defensible line, and we're going to spend the next several years building. Now that is actually a reasonably smart call, in the sense that it's one of the only things they can do. You'll notice that once again they're wrong, though. Not about the strategy, because like I said, what else can they do, right? But in the sense that what they are doing is essentially ensuring that the enemy is going to have a much harder time beating them than they already would. And of course, if for whatever reason the Federation and the Klingons and the Romulans and the God knows who else's, I'm pretty sure the Paklids are at war with them at this point, leave them alone, well then they have time to build. This leads to a scene later on where they d debate this, and the three leaders, the three military commanders are debating this, and, and one of those military commanders happens to be the Chancellor of the Klingon Empire. <laughs> one of them is a flag admiral. Um, but they debate the situation, and the funny thing is, this is why I say the founders and Weyun were wrong. The Federation are peace lovers. They won't go for this. And it's broke us like, well, what about the others? Ah, oh, they're no threat without the Federation. Both of those statements are wrong. The Klingons and Romulans could cause plenty of problems by themselves. Problems? Yes. They're worse than problems and worse than troubles. And the Federation... <sighs> for all of the many, many things I fling mud at the Federation for, and I do, they're not going to back down from this one. I mean... The only hesitation Ross has is he looks at it and says, that's going to be a long, bloody climb. And everyone else says, yep, and he says, okay. When things knuckle down, Starfleet, I should be more clear with my terminology. I've been trying to do this. I mentioned this over in the TNG stuff. Starfleet will get things done. I guess we could continue the serious tone here. So Damar and Kira actually have really good camaraderie in this episode. They work together quite well at multiple things. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, Admiral Forrest, I think. God, I, I think I'm getting his name wrong. It's one of the, it's like one of the most prolific guest actors in Star Trek. He's the guy who plays the Cardassian on the ship, which gets absolutely destroyed, of course. Which means now all it is is Kira and 
Damar and Garrick. Not the best situation to be in. So they flee. Thankfully, Garrick is former Obsidian and happens to know the value of actual loyalty. Funny how that loyalty theme keeps coming in right at the end here. Preemptive strike, TNG. Anyways. <clears throat> so... <sighs> They go find Mila. Again, I hate to keep hammering this loyalty point. Mila is so loyal that she has completely got their backs in this moment, despite not really having any any say in this fight, any horse in this race. She's got their backs because she's loyal. And the funny thing is, Garrick obviously values her and is loyal to her in return, just as powerfully. You remember all the way back when Anabrin Tain was basically at the height of his power? and was launching an attack on the Dominion. This was a while ago, season four, I think. In that, Garrick was the one who basically said, no, you can't kill Mila. And he made a roundabout argument for it, but really it was because of his loyalty to her. Ironically, Garrick is quite a patriot, and he is quite a loyalist. That is to say, he is someone who believes firmly in loyalty. It's just he's incredibly particular about who he gives it to. I would argue of the main cast, he's only given it to two people. Odo and Bashir. So, they go to Mila, and of course, like I said, Mila's a great contrast to Gul Ravak, who was completely unworthable. And there's this really great scene where they start listening. We took 18 cells down, and Damar in the background just says, all 18. Because that was all they had. And there's these great, horrible, dreadful scenes where they're just like, well, I guess we're just going to stay the rest of the the war inside the cellar and see what happens. It doesn't matter how they found them. Actually, it totally does matter, but let's not get into that. And there's a great scene where the three of them are just laying there, just waiting. And Mila comes in and says, Huh, and what they'd say if they see us. And the scene, in total contrast to the last episode, the dialogue in this episode is amazing. It's, it's very tight, very well scripted, and very well presented. I would like to give at least some of that credit to Avery Brooks, but also this is a Ronald D. Moore script, and it, and it shows in many ways. He himself uh, has admitted he likes making fun of himself, and I'll talk about that in a minute when we get to the funny sec section. But they're laying there, you know, look at how pathetic we are, look at how worthless we are. No, they're talking about how DeMar's not even dead. I saw, you should hear the stories, I heard of this. And there's this great bit where DeMar says they're just, they, they're so used to the lies. And that got my brain going. We have very few insights into the people of Cardassia. The reason I try to be so distinguishing about the Cardassian Union is I want to distinguish that from the people of Cardassia, the Cardassians. Watching this, and I don't remember if I've talked about this, but watching this, a new idea just sort of burst in my mind. I think these people have been ready for revolution for a long time. I think that the people have been pushing for this ideal for some time. You remember the Ditapa Council? You remember when the civilian government was in charge of Cardassia? And they were doing everything in their power to reach out peacefully to everyone they could, including Bajor. That was a thing for a while there. In fact, the only thing that stopped that was, was uh, well, the Klingons attacking, and then Dukat signing up with the Dominion. They were fully on their way to a peaceful transition to, a, you know, a, frankly, a better state of existence before everything got in the way, before war and then war got in the way. And you'll remember multiple members of the military have been in support of peace for some time, going back as far as 
TNG, actually. You remember the episode Lower Decks, Season 7? We just covered that a few weeks ago. There was a, a Cardassian in there, a Gull, I believe. Actually, I don't remember if he was a Gull, but he was a Cardassian who was part of the military, part of the Union, who was sick of war and sick of this and wanted to try and help get into a better state. I mean, you see how this is... The, these bricks have been laid for a while. And the irony is this kind of makes them very similar to the Bajorans, if you think about it. That they make good revolutionaries if they're properly prompted. And, of course... The legend of Damar, you know, the great resistance fighter, the unkillable. The Dominion couldn't kill him. And, well, I mean, that we'll get to that next episode, but the desire to believe, the desire to be a part of this. I, I think, I really do think this has been a long time in coming. I'm curious what you guys think of this. The final thing that made me think of it was Damar's casual line, which I began this whole tirade about. Because he mentions the idea that they're so used to being lied to. Now, he means by the Dominion, but I think they're really used to being lied to, period. The Cardassian Union was not a good organization. And I have said since season one, you remember that? All the way back there, I talked about the crimes of the Cardassian Union. I talked about the crimes that it did to other races, to other people, and to its own people. That it would turn its own people into victims, it would drive them mad, or it would turn them into monsters. I think this has been a, a, a pot that has been ready to boil over for a long time. Anyway, sorry, I just, I really like that idea. <sighs> Shifting over to the funny plot, I have much less to say about the funny plot. Um, so, you know, Ferenginar, he calls up... Um, uh, there's a couple of tidbits that show that Quark is, is Quark, basically, and that he has become a softer person, as he himself says. It's actually a really great bit. Again, it's all comedic, so it's not really sh shown seriously, but he's willing to consider, you know, giving a pay raise to the Dabo girls. He's... When he finds out that he's going to be Nagus, he mentions that there will be a room for my brother and, her, and you know, his wife and my nephew... There's a a weird... I, I know that sounds like normal to someone like us, but think of the Ferengi perspective. Think about the kind of things that a typical, greedy, avaristic Ferengi that Cork claims to be would actually do there. They wouldn't allow their family members to hang on. They'd kick them right off the door and rip all their money out on the way out. But no, no, don't worry, I got your backs. He doesn't even negotiate when... No, uh, no, excuse me, Rom decides to go ahead and try to buy the bar. And at the end of the thing, Cork is legitimately happy for Rom, despite everything. Funnily enough, this episode actually had several restructurings with regards to the uh, the Ferengi thing. Originally, the Ferengi reforms weren't even mentioned. Quite a few of the people involved got pretty pissed about that, and I agree. You can't just make Rom Nagus. It doesn't work that way. The Ferengi structure has to have been restructuring for the past couple years behind the scenes. It would have been nice to see some of that on camera, but at least it's been a while since we've last been there. So, sure. He would also... Uh, so, the, another thing is originally Quark was going to actually be Nagus, and then everyone was like, that's a terrible idea. He, Armin Shimmerman was like, no, 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 no. He, he's, he's part of the bar, he's part of the station, he needs to stay there. And, I mean, it's probably telling that the very last line of dialogue in the entire series is by Quark. Anyways, so then it was going to be... Uh, 
ROM, but Quark really wanted it. But again, everyone's like, well, that doesn't work. So then they restructured it, so it's a comic misunderstanding. He thinks he's getting it, but he's not sure he wants it, given the reforms thing. I think this worked out pretty well. This, like I said, it's a good episode. The dialogue pops. Uh, it's very Quark, even though it's funny. There's this great bit, all bribes are tax deductible. Well, you said the T word. Taxes are, are the very opposite of free commerce. That's why they call it free commerce. I'm just going to lay this joke here, and you can make whatever you want of this, but it's interesting to see that Ferengi society has better uh, economic programs with regards to taking care of its infrastructure than the country I currently live in. Moving on. So, <clears throat> no monopolies. That's another one. We have monopolies here. No monopolies. What's what's the good? If What good is it if you can't do it? There's this really great scene where Rom is trying to get Cork to sell the bar to him. And Cork points out, like, what's why would you want such and such reform? And then Rom says, well, here's a reason for the reform. And then Cork says, well, what about this reform? And then Rom says, well, here's another reason for the reform. It's a nice back and forth scene. I actually rather enjoyed it. And, of course, Quark has... Cork makes several references in this episode, but my favorite and the one everyone catches is, of course, the obvious one. This far, no father! For reference, as I mentioned earlier, Ronald D. Moore actually wrote that line back in First Contact. So him writing this line, you know, making fun of himself, kind of works. So they show up. We're, you're going to be this thing. Brunt... <laughs> Brunt is really funny. By the way, double the Wayun, or excuse me, sorry, double the Jeffrey Combs. I love it. I love getting two Jeffrey Combs in one episode. He actually manages to differentiate them quite a bit. Wayun is not pleasant. I mean, Wayun seven and eight have both been pretty horrible, but he's pretty horrible. Brunt, by contrast, is basically lovable. Like, haha. Oh, don't worry, you're still plenty powerful. I wouldn't be sucking up to you if you weren't. You know, just little tidbits like that. And, of course, he offers to be the financial advisor for Rom. Not sure that's a good idea. So, Rom is the perfect fit for the new Ferengan Arnegas. What do you guys think of that? That's the second promotion uh, in, in three episodes here at this point. Or, I guess, third promotion. Whatever, you get my point. What do you think of that idea? I've been po processing that a bit. Rom is smarter than he lets on, and he is more capable than he lets on. Most of Rom's problem comes from a total lack of self-confidence, partially because of Quark, partially because of Ferengi society, and a fairly large amount because of his ex-wife. Rom, this, so I've asked you the question, and I am curious of your thoughts. My thoughts, I think he'd actually make a good Nagus under this new system. And Star Trek Online kind of, you know, manages to agree with me, so that's kind of cool, but it's just interesting to think about. I find myself wondering what kind of world Ferenginar, excuse me, what kind of society the Ferengi Alliance would become under this kind of massive revolutionary reform. And if you're paying attention, that's three major races undergoing substantial and huge sea change levels of reform in the last few episodes. Klingons, Cardassians, Ferengi. Funnily enough, three of the four races that are massively fleshed out by this very show. The only remaining one being the Bajorans, who've been through so many reforms at this point, I've lost count. I, I, I like this. My only complaint, and it is a nitpick, my only complaint is I wish this had been done a little more stretched out rather than in the final few episodes. I mean, this is the second to last episode when the Ferengi reforms hit, for God's sakes. And the Cardassians, well, they're not really getting their, their push until next episode, the last one. 
Although I suppose there's a nice little bookend about that. God, next week we're covering the end of DS9. God, that's a weird thought. I want to mention this here really quick. I've already covered the end of TNG by my perspective. I did TNG first, and then I'm doing TS9. All good things... Like, I've already covered Voyager, right? Endgame was just, eh. You know, uh, these are the Voyages, bleh. TOS doesn't even have a finale. Of all of the Star Treks, only two of them really have a big, powerful, awesome, amazing finale, and that is TNG and Deep Space Nine. And if I'm being honest, that is one of the reasons I wanted to cover these two shows side by side. One of, like, seven reasons, but it was one of the reasons. And having already covered all good things, that one hit in the feels. Next week, I'm going to be looking at what you leave behind. I don't know if I'm emotionally ready for that. I hope you'll join me for it. And I'll see you then. It's crazy.